Counter the latest internet sensation. If it's happening in Melbourne, Seb Costello all over it. Seb, you're a pest, mate. Now, everybody is sad when their side loses an election. She deserves to be the first female president. And that's what makes me so sad. I can't do that now. Good morning, Seb, and good morning, all your listeners. Weekend Breakfast with Seb Costello on Triple M. Happy Saturday, November 12. And if we achieve nothing else this morning, my goal is to get you feeling like this guy. Right now, this minute, today, this week, I am the man! That is an actual press conference from the PGA Tour probably about 20 years ago, but that man had been in 600 different tournaments, and that was after he won his first. Rocky Thompson, his name was. I'll tweet out the link of that press conference. It was quite extraordinary. But what about all the stories buzzing around this morning? Joe Watson handing back his Brownlow. Brian Taylor's ahead, and he has a view on whether we reaward the medal to Sam Mitchell and Trent Cotchin or whether we just leave it blank. Down in Hobart, Australia looking to save face and hopefully knock off South Africa in the second test. We'll talk to Brad Haddon about that. Also got Jeff Fennick on the show and a pretty inspiring story about a double amputee who is now a golfer and hits off a handicap of five. An impressive man. So hopefully by the end of the show, you get more pumped up than UFC star Conor McGregor was at his press conference yesterday. Sorry, I'm late. I just don't give up. Connor, you're here. Everybody's excited. Just curious, where were you? Why, why the lateness? I operate on my time. I operate on my own time. And without me, this whole shit sink. And it's a huge weekend for Conor McGregor and the UFC. Tomorrow, our time, they stage their first ever event in New York City at the world's most famous arena, Madison Square Garden. And Conor is the headline act against Eddie Alvarez. We'll speak to our man at Madison Square Garden in the next half an hour. One, two, three. Here is the three things you need to know about with Channel 9's Peter Hitchner. He's Melbourne's first citizen, and he's generous enough to be a part of the weekend breakfast. Mr. Peter Hitchener, what is our topic for this week? Three things you need to know about Hobart. You're always topical. Of course, in a couple of hours, the second test starts down there in Hobart, Australia, first South Africa. All right, give us the first thing we need to know. Hobart was the first Australian city to introduce parking metres. Soon they'll even have cars too. Sorry, Hobart. (laughs) Nice little dig for the Taswegians. I like it, Hitchy. All right, what's number two? Hobart's Rest Point Casino was the first legal casino to be opened in Australia. Apparently all the two upcoins had two heads. Sorry again, Hobart. (laughs) I like the way you're working this morning, Hitch. All right, what is the third and final thing we need to know about Hobart? Australia's first novel was published in Hobart. Quintus Severington by Henry Savory was published in 1831. Another first? Oh, okay, enough, Hobart. You're showing off now. (laughs) They certainly are. Mate, you've done it again. That was a great segment, Pete. That was the three things you need to know with Peter Hitchener. Did you see that vision on Tuesday of the two guys who jumped into the Mercedes, drove off with it with a six-month-old girl in the back seat, and then a friend of one of the mothers threw herself on the bonnet and just clung to the bonnet as they drove down the street to try and get the thieves to realise that they'd stolen a car and a kid? Well, police were looking for the two men involved in that. One of them drove off with the car. The other fled the scene, and they've made an arrest. They've got two guys, a 44-year-old from Hadfield. He's been charged with theft of a motor vehicle. And then there's a 24-year-old from Coburg who's been charged with theft of a motor vehicle and child stealing. Uh, He did an out-of-sessions hearing last night and was remanded, so he'll be back at court 
tomorrow. All right, we haven't done this for a couple of weeks, but it's time to bring back... In the 20th century, the sporting landscape was indeed a wide world. But with the advent of the interweb communication and global overpopulation, the sporting universe is bigger than ever. And champions beyond the traditional games deserve their recognition. Presenting the weekend breakfast's glittering galaxy of sport. And don't the kids love it? Okay, this is a new and emerging sport in the United States that may well have some of the most amazing athletes you'll ever see. It's called Battle Frog, and think of it as a high-speed relay obstacle course from hell. The founder of it joins us on the line from the United States. Uh, it's great to have a chat to Tom Davis. G'day. Uh, well, I, I like the, your description of uh, obstacle course from hell. That's pretty good. <laughs> um, it, is, uh, it is essentially a, a new sport that we've dubbed Sprint OCR, Sprint Obstacle Course Racing. It's 20 obstacles uh, over 350 meters. Uh, run by uh, a four-person relay team of two men and two women, um, and it's you know head-to-head competition. So uh, you know the winner moves on, and uh, at least in the case of the single elimination version, the you know the loser goes home. Um, and it's just sort of all-out excitement. You know, each race takes about two minutes, um, and it's just a lot of fun. I'll chuck some links up on Twitter at Seb Costello Nine if you want to take a look at what Battle Frog is all about. But where does the name come from? Where does Battle Frog come from? Uh, well, Battle Frog is actually um, it, it, it is a it, well, sorry, our Battle Frog is a company uh, that does mud runs, but Battle Frog itself is a uh, is a slang term for the U.S. Navy SEALs, and the Battle Frog Company was founded by uh, U.S. Navy SEALs, um, and so. It is a sort of a slang term uh, for that uh, elite unit of, of, of fighting men here in the States. In some ways, the obstacles themselves are sort of the stars here. You know, you've got these incredible uh, ramps, almost skate ramps that the guys have to run up. You know, the big um, uh, cargo netting that you have to climb up and jump down on, the over and under sort of hurdles. Who actually designs the obstacle courses? The, the course itself was designed by U.S. Navy SEALs and, and CBs. Um, Sort of based on a uh, on a NATO course that was created years ago, but but you're absolutely right. It's not for the faint of heart. There's you know 16 foot walls and uh, water plunges and uh, <laughs> all kinds of ways that uh, that uh, your day can end pretty quickly if you're not uh, fleet of foot or you're not sure of exactly where you're going and what you're doing. And you see a few face plants in the mud pits, that's for sure. I was watching a bit of this when I was over in the States back in June covering the NBA Finals, and I was looking at the speed in which these guys were racing through the obstacle courses, just thinking, who are these people? Because they're amazing athletes. Absolutely. They're, they're amazing athletes, and they have uh, you know, some really amazing stories uh, as well. Um, you know, and we were, we were really happy that it, you know, everybody really came to compete. This was our second year of doing the college show. And I can tell you, Seb, I mean, the, the level of athleticism, even from year one to year two was absolutely off the charts. So then we added the, you know, the league championship model, which is, uh, you know, people who are out of college who are, uh, you know, who are adept at obstacle course racing, um, themselves, and, uh, you know, again, these are people from all walks of life. These are former NFL players and police inspectors and personal trainers, et cetera. Um, and that level of athleticism is, again, even heightened maybe even just a little bit uh, above some of the college athletes. So, yeah, we were, we were very pleased to have uh, you know, such a competitive event. 
We're talking to Tom Davis, who founded Battle Frog, which is a relay obstacle course, which is uh, taking the US by storm. It's uh, getting pretty big on TV over there. I think it's about time you let some Aussies have a go, Tom. Well, we would love to have a team from Australia. I was, I was in your fine country uh, two years ago and uh, don't have enough positive things to say uh, about Australia. It was, a, it was a great time, and we would love to have teams from uh, you know, Australia and all over the world uh, compete in, uh, in our next iteration. I'm sure there'd be some people pretty excited to take up that invitation. Well, if you're listening to this, chuck Battlefrog into Google and uh, watch some of the videos because, as I said, the athleticism is really impressive. Uh, Tom Davis, nice to chat on Triple M. Thank you very much. Up in Mildura, they've had a huge night of thunderstorms. 200 calls for help, at least to the SES, as this went through around 9pm. 21,000 properties in the Mildura area without power. There was one woman who had to be rescued when a tree came down on her tent. Uh, Ambulance officers say the woman wasn't seriously hurt, but had to be dug out of there. And plenty of trees and power lines down around the Mildura area. Winds of over 100 kilometres per hour. We might cross up to Mildura a bit later in the morning, get a real picture of what is actually going on. Meanwhile, I've got a couple of rumours to share with you later in the show, one of which revolves around the Richmond board situation. That situation is not quite over, and there might be a new face emerging potentially as a candidate for the Richmond board. I'll tell you about that a bit later. Also, one of the most incredible shows in Las Vegas that stars one of the most famous sports people in history could be coming to Australia. Let's talk some UFC. Sorry, I'm late. I just don't give up. Connor, you're here. Everybody's excited. Just curious, where were you? Why, why the lateness? I operate on my time. I operate on my own time. And without me, this whole shit sink. That is the voice of the incredible Conor McGregor. And this weekend, it's as big as it gets when it comes to the UFC. For the first time, they're going to be in New York City at the self-titled world's most famous arena, Madison Square Garden. And that man, Conor McGregor, is headlining in a fight against Eddie Alvarez for the lightweight title. Joining us from New York City, a man who is all over this event and all things mixed martial arts. He's the lead staff reporter for MMA Junkie. It's a very good morning to John Morgan. How you doing, sir? Thanks for having me, brother. Is Conor McGregor the biggest individual sporting phenomenon on the planet at the moment? Boy, it sure seems like it. I mean, you start talking about, uh, you know, some, some soccer stars and things like that. You're Lionel Messi, you're Cristiano Ronaldo. They might be more known around the world just because soccer is such a big sport. But, my gosh, Conor McGregor has stormed on the scene in the last couple of years. It just seems like every time out that he fights, he gets more and more popular. It becomes a bigger and bigger show. More and more people are paying attention. Uh, you know, there was a time when Ronda Rousey was certainly the biggest star in the sport. And she's still, even in the, even despite the loss, she's still a massive superstar. She does get mainstream appeal, but Conor McGregor is, is quickly becoming one of the biggest sports stars in the nation. There's no question about it. So for those who don't follow the UFC too closely, Conor is stepping up a weight class here. He's going to be fighting at lightweight, which is 65 to 70 kilos uh, in the system that we use in Australia. He's fighting the lightweight champion in Eddie Alvarez. And if he wins, it makes history, doesn't it? It would. He'd be the first man ever to simultaneously hold two championship belts in the UFC. Uh, two other men have done it before. BJ Penn and Randy Couture have won titles in two different weight classes, but never did they do it simultaneously and hold both those belts at once. So real history on the line again. As you said, Conor McGregor already the champ at 145 pounds, moving up 10 pounds in weight to face Eddie Alvarez. And uh, as he said, uh, to make himself immortal, to set some history that's never been done before if he can win this fight.
We heard before Conor McGregor's voice, he was talking about how he was late. And that was the press conference where Eddie Alvarez actually got a bit of, bit fed up. He got up and left. Conor finally arrived and then stole Eddie Alvarez's title belt and sat it on his desk inside that press conference. Just explain what went on there. Yeah, pretty entertaining. I mean, Eddie Alvarez was there. Conor was late. Okay, Connor has uh, kind of made it known that he's going to be late to pretty much everything. That's become a little bit of uh, part of his routine. But, you know, Eddie answered some questions and then decided, you know what, I'm done with this. I'm out. I'm storming off. You guys can give me a call when Connor shows up. Connor did walk out there, saw that Eddie wasn't there, walked to the other side of the dais, grabbed his title belt and put them both down. So he had the two titles in front of him for at least a moment. At that point, Eddie did come back out and, and immediately walked over to the other side of the table, grabbed his belt back and set it in front of him. That set off a little bit of a, a, a melee between the two. Fortunately, Dana White was in there between them. Some security guards got in the way. No blows were thrown, but it was certainly the most tension we've seen between these two fighters in that exchange. We're talking to John Morgan, who's the lead staff reporter at MMA Junkie. He is in New York for UFC 205. And, mate, what does that city feel like the first time the UFC can come to New York? It's big. I mean, obviously, it's incredible. If anybody's ever been to, to New York before, I mean, obviously, it's a big, bustling city. So, you know, it's tough to say that, that, that the UFC is taking over the whole town. Uh, there's just so much going on here. But you can really feel the buzz. I mean, we're, we're standing just, you know, just outside of Madison Square Garden right now. There's signage everywhere for the UFC. People are talking about it. Media outlets that don't normally cover the UFC are, are paying attention to it this week because it is here in New York, the media capital of the world. Uh, just very, very much a buzz all about it. Everywhere you go, uh, you know, bartenders, uh, taxi cab drivers, people that we kind of come in contact around the city, they're asking about it. They want to know. It was an incredibly hot ticket, sold out. $18 million is what we're hearing for the live gate, uh, beating the Madison Square Garden record by some $6 million. So the, the tickets were not cheap, and they sold out fast. Uh, there's there's definitely a buzz about it, and and, and they're, they're definitely buzzing about Conor McGregor. It's a fantastic card from top to bottom. There's a ton of good fights. But anytime Conor McGregor is on the card, it becomes the Conor McGregor show. And, mate, I'll put you on the spot. Here it is, title on the line, Eddie Alvarez versus Conor McGregor. How do you see this fight going? You know, it's, it's a great stylistic clash. I think uh, if, if Eddie can, can wrestle uh, and, and you know, kind of stay tight with Conor McGregor, maybe take him into deep waters, getting into the later rounds, he could start to shift the momentum in his direction. But for me, i got to go with Conor McGregor. It seems like this guy has been promising he would accomplish this history since the minute he stepped in the UFC. People laughed at him. People thought it was impossible. And how could anybody simultaneously hold two belts? Here he is on the verge of doing it. I just feel like there's a little bit of destiny behind him. Add to that that he's a counter-striker and that Eddie Alvarez is going to be moving forward and being aggressive. I think uh, Conor clips him with a big left hand and uh, gets a TKO finish in round two and sets that history that he's been out to accomplish. I cannot wait. If you're looking at getting it or watching it in Australia, it'll start around midday tomorrow, so make sure you have a look. It's UFC 205, Conor McGregor versus Eddie Alvarez from New York City, where it's all happening. Uh, John Morgan, the lead staff reporter for MMA Junkie, thanks for your time. Pleasure. Thanks for having me, brother. Just getting some more details of these thunderstorms that have gone through Mildura. I'm hearing that there's going to be millions upon millions of dollars worth of damage, particularly around the Red Cliffs area. These thunderstorms have come through and they have resulted in cars being total wipeouts. I just spoke to one man who's had two cars that he left out last night and they're gone. He'll never drive them again. Not to mention uh, dozens and dozens of crops have been ruined, almond crops, scrape crops, all the kind of uh, things that they're growing up there. So we might cross up to Mildura a bit later in the morning and get the latest on those thunderstorms and the damage that they have done. Joe Watson is a massive story, though, today. It's on the front page of all the papers, and it happened about mid-afternoon yesterday when he put out a statement from his management, and it said, 
it is with mixed emotions that I have decided to hand back my 2012 Brownlow medal. The basic principle behind this prestigious award is to honour the fairest and best. If there is a question in people's minds as to whether the 2012 award is tainted, the fairest and best thing to do is to give it back and honour the history that has gone before me. I think in doing that, Joe Watson won thousands and thousands of more fans than he had before. It's just a, a tremendously decent thing to do. And his statement was followed up by the AFL. Gil McLaughlin said that the AFL acknowledges that this was an extremely difficult decision to make. In Job's own words, he is honouring the history of the medal and putting the interests of the game first, and that is an honourable position for him to have taken. You can say that again, Gil McLaughlin. Amazing move by Job Watson. And finally, Essendon put out a statement. Lindsay Tanner, the chairman, said that Job has remained unassailably dignified under the most extraordinary pressure over the past four years. The club takes responsibility for placing Job in this position and unreservedly apologises to him and his family. That's the key part there, isn't it? The club, Essendon, takes responsibility for placing Job in that position. Because that was something that I guess we didn't hear from people at Essendon uh, for a while. So for them to be standing up and saying we're sorry, that's significant and good on them for doing so. In the Herald Sun today too, Michael Warner and Mark Robinson have a report and they have spoken to James Hurd, who was the coach in the middle of all of this. And this is what James Hurd has had to say about Joe Watson giving his medal back. James Hurd. Joe Watson never cheated, he never took anything illegal, and he won the medal fairly, and he shouldn't have to give it back. Stephen Dank has never been found guilty of giving the players a performance-enhancing drug, and it's wrong Job has to hand back the medal. It completely bewilders me, and I feel terrible for Job. That's James Hurd. Well, I've got to agree with him that we all feel terrible for Job. He shouldn't have to give it back. But he's decided to, and it probably is the right decision, as he says, to maintain the fairness and, and purity of the award. The question now becomes, Sam Mitchell and Trent Conchin finished second that year. Are they re-awarded the 2012 Brownlow medal? You might have seen up in Queensland, a young child was diagnosed with a particularly dangerous strain of the meningococcal virus. And there have been warnings now put out by the AMA, the Doctors' Union, as well as the National uh, National Centre for Immunisation Research and Surveillance. Look, it's a particularly brutal disease, and that's why these warnings have been put out if you're in Queensland, but also if you're in Victoria or Western Australia. On the line is a man who went through a particularly nasty, dangerous and almost fatal bout of meningococcal. He was 18 years old, was playing centre-half forward down in the Southern Footy League when he went on a footy trip to Tasmania, and that's where he got sick. Mike Rolls, great to have you on the line. And what did this do to you? Thanks very much for having me. Um, look, yeah, as you said, I was on a way on a football trip only at the age of 18. And I guess at the end of a, a pretty strenuous season, we, we decided to celebrate and go on, on this football trip. And I must have been a little bit run down and uh, couple that with probably the partying that we were getting up to. And somewhere along the line on that trip, uh, I contracted this brutal disease that, um, that really knocked me for an absolute six. And uh, I don't remember anything about the trip. I actually, the last thing I remember was getting dropped off to go to the airport with some mates. And the next thing I remember was waking up five and a half weeks later after an induced coma at the Alfred Hospital. Gosh, what had it done to your body in that five and a half weeks? Yeah, so pretty, uh, pretty, pretty shocking injuries. Uh, externally, as I, uh, you know, I lost my right leg below the knee and half of my left foot, which I've you know, since, you know, it's a long time ago, but since then I've had that amputated as well. So I'm actually a double below knee amputee now. I lost a couple of fingers on my right hand, extensive skin grafting all over my body. Part of my nose was actually removed. 
And internally, um, I had liver failure, kidney failure, uh, complete organ failure, really. My weight plummeted from 80 kilos down to 47 kilos. And I had three bleeds on my brain as well at the time. So they were telling my family that when I woke up, there was a good chance I'd had uh, severe brain damage, which um, they'd probably argue that I do. <laughs> uh, but but, uh, but uh, yeah, it was, it was one of those things where it was such a gradual wake up um, and it was... It felt like I'd been run over by a truck. I've gone from running around a football field to the next minute lying in a bed, not being able to move, you know, lift my bed more than a couple of inches above the bed. And mate, speaking to you today, you, you sound like a, you know, a, a happy, positive person. How how do you come back from that sort of, for want of a better word, negative, life-changing experience? So um, for me, everything was, uh, you know, had to be put into perspective. So it wasn't just, oh, you know what, I want to walk. That was sort of the least of my concerns. The, the initial stages, it was just, I want to live. So it was a day-by-day proposition. I had to gain some weight. Um, there was some issues with, you know, breathing. I had lots of infection on my lungs from being in hospital. So the, it was very, very, ba- it was baby steps, if you will, at the start. So I've learned to develop a, a life where I can be happy. I understand what it takes to um, make, make sure that I'm in good shape in terms of lessening my pain on a daily basis. So I do a lot of exercise in the gym. And I've learned ways to adapt to uh, the circumstances that I was put in uh, all those years ago. And I've always had the attitude is, you know what, it's happened. There's nothing I can do about that. And how about we make the best of it? Rather than focusing on what I can't do, I focus on what I can. And I do those things that I can do to the best of my ability. Speaking of doing things to the best of your ability, you don't play footy anymore, but uh, you do play golf. As a double uh, amputee, what's your handicap? Uh, At the moment, it's... uh, 5.7, 5.7, I think it is. So, um, but that's, yeah, I, look, I'll be honest. Right, that's gonna, not bad, mate. Yeah, yeah, I have, have days where it's better than that, but I also have days where it, it's not it's not as good because, you know, obviously balance can be a bit of an issue, so you get those stances, and especially when you play with rat bags like my dad, who gives you no concessions <laughs> when you've got to stick one leg in the sand and one leg out and all that sort of stuff. He's like, play it where it lies. So, so, so those sorts of things, uh, you know, like I said, football was out of the question. Now, um, I, I love playing football. I'm not going to lie. It was, a, it was a brilliant part of my week. Um, and then all, all of that was gone in a flash. And I think being competitive and having that will to, to win, um, almost annoyingly, I, I guess I just wanted to, to keep playing some sort of competitive sport. And I focused all my energy and attention on the golf. And, mate, I know this experience has also led you to a place where you want to help out some people who are doing some pretty special things. And I know the yep. cause of Interplus Australia is one that's pretty close to your heart. What do they do? Uh, they're a fantastic organisation. So I, was, uh, I did the Eureka Climb um, about three years ago at the launch event. And I met the CEO, Pro Ingram. And it turns out that five of the surgeons that did directly operated on me, actually work and do work for Interplast over in Southeast Asia. So they, uh, they send surgeons across to train up other surgeons so that their legacy and the work that they actually carry out over there lives on a uh, long time after they've actually left. So they do all sorts of amazing plastic surgery works, such as uh, a lot of burns work, uh, cleft pellet, um, amputations, I believe that they do, um, and a number of this, this stuff that really can help people to get back to living a life of normality. And one story I remember them telling me was there was a, a father uh, of three kids who had bad burns on the back of his legs and he'd walked around on his hands for a number of years and the surgeons uh, were able to, I think it was you know a, a good decade later, uh, were able to um, free up the skin on the back of his legs and operate on him so that he could finally walk again and do the things that he needed to do to support his family. So the real from from a practical perspective and the stuff that they've been able to do for me in my life and the things I'm able to do as, as, as a result of plastic surgery 
it's a, something that's really close to my heart and um, I love helping out and I think it's a really worthy cause. And part of the way you can support it is through the Eureka Stair Climb, which is happening on Sunday. That's why we're talking to Mike. And this is a race up the 1,642 stairs, 88 levels of the Eureka Tower down there in South Bank. Mike, you've done this a couple of times, I think. How'd you go? Uh, I've done it for, yeah, three years in a row. And um, look, the whole time you're doing it, you just you're just thinking, what the hell was I thinking? Um, it's not a it's not a fun event to do. There's not a lot of oxygen in there, but it's really great when you get up the top and you realise you're supporting a worthy charity. Um, it's a great sensation. You feel like you've done you've done a, a good thing, and it's good for the soul. So when you get up there, um, you look across Melbourne, this beautiful city that we live in. It's a sensational event, and it's something that I recommend everyone needs to do at least once. But not only that, you get to support two wonderful charities in the meantime. You can check that out at eurekaclimb.com.au. And uh, I think White Lion is the other charity, isn't it, uh, Mike? Yeah, correct. That's right, White Lion. Yeah, exactly. So uh, get involved if you can. Mike Rolls, uh, mate, listening to your story, I think there is uh, something in it for all of us about you know perseverance, about optimism. And uh, I appreciate you sharing it with us. Thanks very much, Seb. Appreciate that. And I heard a rumour during the week that Iron Mike Tyson, the great heavyweight boxer, is currently doing a Las Vegas show called Undisputed Truth. It's a spoken word tour. And I heard a little rumour that there are plans in the works to bring Iron Mike and that show to Melbourne. Just working on that off air. On the line is a man who has worked with Iron Mike Tyson. He also happens to be one of Australia's greatest ever boxers. And he's in Melbourne today for a health and fitness expo. G'day, Jeff Fennick. Good morning. Man, what's Iron Mike like? Yeah, he's a champion, man. You know, not only he's a great fighter, but he's a great human and somebody who I was able to you know, train personally and spend a lot of time with. So, um, you know, I, I know him quite well. And, I, you know, like I said, I know both sides of Mike. And Mike's a, a great human and helps a lot of people. Is he as out there as he seems when we see him uh, on the movies with his pet tiger and all that? Uh, well, that's a movie. But, I mean, he's had a couple of pet tigers in, in his time. And, um, you know, yeah, he's certainly um, he's out there. He enjoys his life which he deserves to after doing what he done and training so hard all his career and his life. He deserves all the, the rewards he gets. Now, mate, you were featured on The Apprentice, the TV show. If we've learned anything this week, that means you're now qualified to run for president. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, look, I'm um, shocked to, to the system. But, look, I, I kind of feel that you know, having somebody um, as a president of America that's really been out there and, and, and knows what happens in the world as well as just you know, in, in books and stuff. I think it's, it's a good change. I think it's gonna. I think it's. I think it's gonna be great. That's my opinion. Now, mate, the next big Australian boxing fight is in February. It's Danny Green and Anthony Mundine. A little while ago, you called for it to be called off. Do you, do you still feel that way? Definitely so. I mean, and if you look at the the two people in their last uh, in their last fights, one foot at seventy kilos, one foot at eighty six kilos, which is over thirty pounds difference in weight. I mean. That's a disaster waiting to happen. That's 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 a, uh, that's a train wreck. I mean, um, boxing usually doesn't allow that, so I don't know how they're allowing it in Adelaide. I know they're meeting at catch weights. One's going to be, you know, they're saying the weight's going to be 83, but um, Anthony needs to put a lot of weight. And straight after Danny makes 83 kilos, he will put on six or seven kilos. In the last uh, time, one of those big things happened in America was um, uh, a guy by the name of Akira Gatti when he uh, hit, hit a guy named Joey Gamash who was 20 pounds lighter than him, and, and Joey Gamash really was nearly died mm. after the fight. So um, for me, look, this is not about age. It's not about anything else. It's just about, you know, we have rules in boxing and there's laws that we have weight divisions. And each weight division is like, you know, 
four, four or five pounds difference, not not thirty pounds, which is you know like I said unrealistic, and I think it's um, a disaster waiting to happen. I think it's going to be. Quite, I just think the fight's going to be a stinker anyway. When Danny <laughs> Green, when Danny Green hits Anthony one day once, the fight will be over. Anthony's been knocked down nine times against guys that are seventy kilos. Here's a guy going to hit him that's going to be ninety kilos in the night. So it's, it's just disaster. So the best thing for anybody in Melbourne to do is just. When the fight starts at 10 o'clock, have a beer, go to your local, and then just put on Fox Sports, and, and after about three or four minutes, you'll see the headlines of the news, and you'll see Anthony Mundine getting knocked out. <laughs> don't waste no money. We're talking to Jeff Fennick. Well, Jeff, I did want to play you this, because I don't know if there's um, a bit of tension between you and Danny or what, but I did want to play you. Danny came on the show a few weeks ago, uh, and he responded to, to your comments saying that the fight should be called off, and here's what he had to say. We all know Jeff is a very, very kind of bitter man. He, he, he's that bitter that he'd make a lemon screw his face up. Mate, so what do you make of that? Now, listen, um, Danny, obviously, <laughs> saying that because he knows I'm right. Look, the whole boxing world knows, knows I'm right. I mean, there was a great fight in, in, uh, 10 years ago. 10 years later, um, you know, um, like I said, Anthony, Anthony's nowhere near the athlete that he was. Doesn't have the chin anymore. I'm just talking about from, from a, a person that's been there and done it. I'm You're like, being very diplomatic there, mate. You're yeah, not uh, buying into his bitterness. Yeah, well, I don't need to buy into his bitterness because this is not this is not bitterness for me. This is just being honest. It's about boxing. This is about giving boxing another black eye. He already done it when he fought Paul Briggs. Paul Briggs shouldn't have been allowed to fight, and Anthony Mundine shouldn't be allowed to fight either. So, um, you know, this is just another black eye for boxing. This is again about bitterness. It's not about bitterness. This is about, um, you know, the, the sport of boxing, which is already suffering um, at the hands of, U- of the UFC and everything else. And now we're going to give it another, another chance to suffer. Well, may people get a chance to say good day to you at the Melbourne Health and Fitness Expo. It's uh, 12 noon out in Berwick today. Uh, there'll be some selfies, Q&A, all the rest of it. Thanks for joining us on Triple M this morning. It's a pleasure. If anybody's stupid enough to spend that $59, wherever it's going to be on the flight, give it to a charity because it'll be much better. They, they, they need it much more than those two guys. And today, the Aussie Test team will be fighting for pride and reputation down in Hobart when the second test gets underway. We'll have at least two changes with Peter Siddle and Sean Marsh injured. Joe Burns comes into bat and Joe Many will be making his test debut. But will there be a third change? Callum Ferguson for Mitch Marsh. On the line is a man who wore the baggy green over 60 times. It's a very good morning to Brad Haddon. Morning. How are we going? Mate, I'm good. What do you think? Does Mitch keep his spot? Yeah, it's an interesting uh, scenario. I think with this one, uh, the weather's going to play a huge part in it because traditionally Australia would have already named their 11 like they did last week. But I think with the weather around, I think the longer the rain stays around, uh, I think the less likely that uh, we'll play the all-rounder. So it's going it's to be really interesting selection in the, um, at the start of this game. It'll be fascinating, and you mentioned the forecast. So there's rain forecast today, rain forecast tomorrow, and then some morning showers around on Monday. So, you know, it could be a test that's interrupted quite considerably. Yeah, it just sounds like a typical uh, week in Hobart, doesn't it? So, <laughs> yeah, but I, I think with the, with, with the weather, it's, it's got to be an interesting selection because if there is a lot of rain around, you can go in with, with, with three fast bowlers, but you could also go... The other way, oh, I think there's about three scenarios um, that could happen. You could go in with no spinner if it's if it's going to be wet for the game. I, I don't think would, we would do that, Dave. Um, we like to have our spinner in the in the team, but yeah, it's going it's going to be real interesting to see which way they go. But you would have followed the debate during the week, which was started by Graham Smith, the former captain of South Africa. Now, in my view, he was probably just trying to get us off our game and distract us away from the business of winning test matches. But he did try and start a conversation around the Australian captaincy. 
you know, he said that he expects a debate to come soon as to whether Steve Smith stays in the job and to whether the brash, his words, David Warner, might be considered a future captain. Do you think Smith's a good skipper? Yeah, oh, I think he, did. he is. Um, he's, he's new in the job and, and everyone's under pressure in the Australian cricket team. That, that's the nature of playing for Australia. And um, Yeah, we'll have some good and bad days, but Steve Smith's the, the right man to, to lead Australia um, for, for the next, or however long he wants, to, to be perfectly honest. So oh, I think Graham was just trying to uh, cause a little bit of trouble. Maybe yeah. they should look at their captain. Isn't A.B. De Villiers the captain? And by the looks of it, uh, Faf Duplessis did a really good job. So that might be an interesting conversation South Africa have to have when the, the superstar batter and captain comes back. Exactly. Get your own house in order, South Africa. We'll be all right on our side of the fence. The other thing that Smith raised, though, which uh, is also an interesting topic, is he talked about the way when he played Australia during his career, he basically knew who the eleven was going to be regardless of the format. And he said that that consistency of lineup uh, made for a, for a team that was respected and hardened. And he wondered whether splitting up the teams and a rotation policy is sort of reducing the hardness of the Australian cricketers. The example he gave is, I think we've got a test uh, coming up in India in the new year, uh, about you know 24 hours after there's a 2020 game back in Australia. So clearly there's going to be a different 2020 side to the test side representing Australia. What do you think of, uh, of this sort of fixturing and splitting up the forms so you've essentially got special teams for each format? Oh, I don't see see a big deal of it. The, to be perfectly honest, yeah, mate, the the best everyone wants to play Test cricket, so the best squad will be be over there in India, um, getting ready for the Test. But traditionally, we haven't played great in tournament play with 2020 cricket. So to pick the guys who perform the best in the Big Bash League and and give them an opportunity to to play 2020 mightn't be a bad thing for for our depth and to, to get a look at a few different players on, on the international stage. So that's that's nothing to do with culture or um, things like that. That's just a scheduling thing that's um, happened with the with the Futures Tour program. So you know, I don't see it to, to be that big of an issue, to, to be perfectly honest. We're going to have a look at a few different players who perform well in the Big Bash and give them a crack at international cricket, which which could also be a good thing. So I actually don't see too much of a problem with it. We're talking to Brad Haddon, Haddon, and when he talks cricket, he makes a lot of sense. Mate, just before we let you go, can the Aussies get one back and level the series in Hobart? A hundred percent. This is, there's a lot of character in that, in that change room, as there is um, forever and a day with the Australian cricket team. I know that David Warner has been um, called the reverend with all his positive energy lately, but, if you put these guys into a corner, they're going to start throwing punches. So, mate, look out for for the guys this game. I know they're hurting after what happened in um, in Perth, but they're not going to roll over. They'll come out throwing punches, and it's going to be good to watch. So, uh, yeah, get in front of that telly for the first couple of hours of this one, I reckon. It sounds like bliss, mate. We just get to settle in for the day and watch Australia try and get that reputation and get that passion back into Test cricket. Brett Haddon, thanks for your time. No worries. Thanks for having me. Up in Mildura, we're seeing reports that there have been over 200 calls for help and some intense thunderstorms. Thought we'd go to the scene and, and figure out just how bad it is up there. Joining us on the line is the Mayor of Mildura, Glenn Mill. Morning, Glenn. Uh, good morning, Steve. It's Seb, but that's okay, mate. How bad is it? Sorry. Yeah. Um, look, it's probably not the best morning for a lot of locals in town. Uh, they've had 
basically a cyclone through the town of Merbeen. Um, and uh, there's roofs off of buildings, there's trees down everywhere, um, a lot of damage. Uh, we've also had um, a huge hailstorm out the other side of Mildura at Redcliffe and uh, a lot of cars damaged, a lot of crops damaged. It'll be, it'll be in the tens of millions of dollars of damage. Jeez. So uh, have you had some damage at your place? Oh, yeah, I've had two cars hailed. Um, I reckon they'll be right off. Uh, they were out the front. I was actually at a, um, at a function, and uh, we sat through a huge electrical storm and windstorm, but didn't see the hail, and that was halfway between the Jew and Redcliffe. And, uh, but, um, yeah, around the place. My sister's had uh, her carport land on two cars, one of them a brand-new one. Um, she's not a happy camper this morning either. We're talking to the Mayor of Mildura, Glen Milne, where they've had some intense thunderstorms up there. What about crops, mate? I mean, it's a big uh, rural area. Yeah, uh, look, I was talking to a farmer, and he's had a beautiful almond crop, and he said there's not an almond left on his trees, and um, that's where the real big dollars will be. Uh, this wheat crop, I believe, right out um, into the Millawa, so we're talking sort of 60 to 80 k's out from Mildura. Um, I haven't had a chance to drive out there yet. I'll be going out there later today, but um, I, I believe a lot of those are flattened, and... Um, there's a lot of damage to citrus crops, grape crops in the Redcliffe area. There's mainly wind on one side of Mildura around Merbeen. Um, the other side upstream was, uh, was hail and that's just shredded um, trees. I mean, I've got a plum tree out the back and there's about two plums left on it. Mate, how, what was it like in sort of the middle of the eye of the storm? What, what were you hearing and feeling in terms of the wind and the hail? Uh, well, um, we sort of... Uh, because the function centre we we're at had big glass windows, and we could see the trees starting to bend over, and um, you could see there was sort of really dark grey clouds, but then these real black ones come underneath. And I remember I was sitting next to another councillor, and I said, "Hey, this is that's not good. That is really bad." And uh, with that came a windstorm, um, then a uh, uh, lightning and huge amount of rain. And uh, I phoned the wife because I was waiting. Um, she was at home by herself or well, with my kids, but, um, uh, you know, she sent me photos back of the uh, hail and what was going on around home. And then the uh, I've got a uh, app, you know, for the fire calls, and there was about 80 calls for assistance in a matter of minutes. It just, uh, you know, the phone just kept going off. So it was pretty intense there for a while. Well, Glenn Milne, the Mayor of Mildura, we're sending our thoughts uh, up your way, particularly for the farmers who've lost stock and people who've had uh, home and car damage. Mate, take care. Yeah, and I think the Premier maybe need to jump on a plane and come up and uh, there'll be some pretty devastated locals here because it'll affect their incomes for a number of years. Well, mate, hopefully Dan Andrews is listening. So over the next few days, nominations will close for the Richmond Football Club board election. This has been a big story in the news with that focus on football group that tried to run and then called it off. Well, there's two spots up for grabs. There's two incumbent directors who are running again. And I'm told that the so-called Malvern group of high-profile businessmen, wealthy benefactors of the club, are considering staging a last-minute campaign. And that also there's another businessman who you may not have heard of who has spent decades in the public service who is mounting a campaign of his own. Just watch that space because there'll be more coming on that particular campaign in the coming days. Right now, speaking of Richmond, here's a bloke that kicked a fair few goals for them. Ready. A bounce, a right for Nada. The biggest high-fly act you've ever seen in your life. Come on, mate. Follow me. Follow me to the bench.
is Brian Taylor. Looks like I'm the only one to win a Coleman and be in a film. And this is Bristles Missing. Take your flags and stick them you know where. We're very lucky to have this man because there's a massive football story that we need to talk about. And yesterday, the statement came from Job Watson's management that changed everything. It said, it is with mixed emotions that I have decided to hand back my 2012 Bradlow medal. The basic principle behind this prestigious award is to honour the fairest and the best. And if there is any question in people's minds as to whether the 2012 award is tainted, the fairest and best thing to do is give it back and honour the history that has gone before me. Brian, it was a huge move by Job. Look, it was a, it was a monster move. I don't know whether it preempted what Gillian McLaughlin was going to do. And that's probably a question I've got to put to you. What... What do you think? Was it going to go that way anyway? It would make sense if the commission had already decided to take the medal back. It would make sense to inform Job privately and give him the option of doing this. Right, okay. So that's probably probably what's happened then. Look, if you're going to lose it, it's probably the right thing to do. I would have tried to hang on myself, but I can understand all the all the pressures. Why would you have whatever. tried to hang on? What, what, what was the thinking behind that? Why would you say, no, I'm keeping this? Oh, because I've earned it because I played well that year and uh, I, I was the best player in the competition. And you know what? I did as much training as anyone else um, and I deserved the medal because I was the best player. That's why I would have tried to hang on. Uh, it's not a year I would have said, well, I'm going to throw that away. I would have uh, I would have definitely hung on. That's for sure. Hey, how does this affect the other people involved? Like, you know, what, what does this do to the way people see James Hurd now that a Joe Watson has said to hand his Brownlow back? Yeah, it's not good. Uh, not good. And not good for the club. I've said a club have come out and made a statement and said, look, we apologise, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, it's, it's an absolute disgrace uh, with what's happened. And, uh, you know, the fact that uh, Essendon could have gone in a different direction at the start of all of this and alleviated all of the pressures that we've now seen, including this one on Joe. So, mate, the big question now becomes, what do you do with the 2012 Brownlow medal? We know Trent Cotchin and Sam Mitchell finished second that year. Do you think they should reaward the medal to Trent Cotchin and Sam Mitchell? Look, I, I probably do on the basis that our sport has always been next in line. So Chris Grant's the best example. I know it wasn't a prospective awarding or a non-awarding of the Brownlow medal, but it was there and then. But I, I think it is fair that uh, if Job's uh, having the medal taken away from him, then then uh, the other two should be should be in line to receive it. I think uh, that should happen. That presentation should happen at, uh, at next year's Brownlow. We might take some calls on this. One triple three five three. The AFL will make that decision on Tuesday. They have the option to leave it blank if they want to. But I guess uh, Brian, the the international precedent here is to reaward it. Uh, if an athlete tests positive for drugs in Olympic Games, you don't void the event you re-award the medal to the person that came second, as we saw with Jared Talent, the walker. He got his gold medal. Yeah, of course, we're not an Olympic sport. We're, we're Australian rules footy, so we are different. Um, I understand your point about following, you know, the, the way the Olympics uh, re-award these medals, but that's not us. But having said that, I think it's probably, probably the right thing to do. So uh, get on with it and do it. It's a disgrace that it's happened. Um, I feel so sorry for Job. There's not a more honest operator in the AFL than Joe Watson, but uh, it's happened. Let's move on. Let's alleviate the pressure off him and his teammates by uh, by just getting on with it. How would you feel? How do you think Sam Mitchell would feel about having the medal re-awarded to him? Uh, bemused, um, uh, strange, um, not 
sort of forthcoming, uh, he would he would feel quite weird about it because he would probably also feel deep down that he's been robbed of the experience of what the Brownlow delivered in in that uh, you know opening few weeks. Uh, it's similar to winning a premiership. I mean, you experience the winning of a premiership in in the week after, not not four years later or three years later. Be a weird feeling, wouldn't it? Yeah, and you yeah. would think, you know, I didn't get to stand on the dais, I didn't get to have it yeah. placed around my neck. Yep, that's right. And this is a big story football-wise. There's no question about it. There's no, you know, he's, he's one of the biggest players in the AFL, and uh, uh, I'm feeling for him a little bit. It's a huge story, mate, and we appreciate you making some time for us this morning. Give us a call one triple three five three. Should Sam Mitchell and Trent Cochin be reawarded the Brownlow Medal? Brian Taylor, have a great weekend. Good on you, Seb. In the hot topic, Joe Watson has handed back his Brownlow medal. Should Sam Mitchell and Trek Conchin be reawarded the 2012 Brownlow? And for a hot topic, got a pretty hot prize too. We've got tickets to Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band Summer 17 Tour to give to our best caller. Let's start off with Russell at Reservoir. What do you reckon, Russ? Uh, G'day, Seb. Um, Yeah, I agree with everything that you and Brian have been saying, but... um I'm a Collingwood supporter, and I always, um, you know, way against Essendon and Carlton, but I feel really bad about what's happened, and Joe Watson doesn't deserve this. He's one of the best um, players you've ever seen. Good call, and, Russ. Uh, yeah. I appreciate your call, mate. I uh, hope the pies do all right for you next season, too. Uh, at Mornington, Glenn, what do you reckon? Should the Brownlow be reawarded to Cochin and Mitchell? Uh, morning, Seb. Love your show. Look, to be honest, um, with the 3-2-1 system, if Job was ha- happened to get three votes, the next bloke that had two would go up to three votes. The bloke that had one would go up to two votes. How do they find who gets those single votes? So really, if they broke it all down to the voting, you know, Job comes out of the voting system, the three, two and one would have to be recalculated over every player in every game. Surely. It's a fair call, mate. Thanks for your call, Glenn. You're in the running for those Bruce Springsteen tickets. And I saw Sammy Landsberger, who's a gun journal at the Herald Sun, had done a calculation that if you took out all of the Essendon games completely, so anyone who got 3-2-1 in a game featuring Essendon in 2012, then the leaderboard actually reshuffles so that Scott Thompson at Adelaide is the leading vote-getter of the 2012 season. Interesting. Uh, Josh at Karen, what do you reckon? G'day, Seb. Um, mate, I'm a mad keen Bombers fan, love Joe, but we should take, like BT was saying, we're not an Olympic sport, take a precedent from the NRL. You know, when Melbourne Storm was stripped of their premierships, no one will, I mean, the second place getter didn't get the premiership that year. It was just left as a blank in the book. Mate, you talk a lot of sense when you put the case like that. It seems, uh, you know, you, you make a pretty simple argument. Uh, and as I say, uh, I can see where you're coming from. Uh, to Rod at Melbourne, what do you reckon? Should Cochin and Mitchell get the Brownlow? Uh, no, Seb. Uh, morning, anyway. Seb, I believe that the way the AFL's handled this and, and what's gone on and all the duck shoving and, and innuendo and it's all been well documented for year after year and put the game through absolute mayhem in this regard, that, the, that, that it should be left vacant to remind people into the future of just what a mess the AFL created in, in this. Uh, just as, just as a, a monument to, to, to people in, into the future. But I appreciate that. Thanks for your call, Rod. I don't mind that idea of having the blank space on the board as a reminder, perhaps, of what can happen if, you know, you let sports scientists and the like take control of your footy club. To finish off uh, with Rihanna Diggers-Rest, g'day, what do you reckon? Yeah, hi, how you doing? Good. I think Joe, Joe Watt 
Preston should keep his brown low because he's done nothing wrong. He's a great player. I think the AFL and the media have just made him feel so bad that he feels that he has to give it back, and he really doesn't. He's deserved it. So I think the AFL should just move on and find someone else to pick on. We all love Joe Brown. There's no doubt about that. Thank you for your call, G. We had some good callers in the mix there for the Bruce Springsteen tickets. I think I'm going to award it to Glenn from the Mornington Peninsula. Tickets to Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band Summer 17 Tour. There's a double pass there for you, mate. And he was the one thinking about how exactly the votes are going to work if you take Joe Watson out of the 2012 season. Tuesday is the day the AFL makes the decision. That's when the commission meets and they will announce whether the Brownlow will be re-awarded or not. So we'll be watching that with interest. And that, as always, heralds the arrival of the 10 Eyewitness News crime reporter, Chanel Vella. Good morning. Good morning. You're flying solo this morning. My wingman's gone. Yeah, where is she? She's alive. Okay. Nothing bad has happened. <laughs> She's just off to Noosa. Oh, lovely. This is, yes. of course, Jade Vincent from Channel 9, who's usually a part of this segment. Well, Jade, wishing you all the best up there in Noosa. What's excited you this week? Well, you may have thought biggest story of this week is Trump. Oh. Wrong. <laughs> That is not. You're the sounding biggest, like Trump. That is not wrong. Wrong. <laughs> wrong. That is not the biggest story of this week. No, what was the biggest story? Is Tim, who flew his drone to Bunnings to get a <laughs> yeah, snack. Yeah, I did see this. The legend. So this is a young fella from Sunbury. He's in his hot tub in the backyard. He's got one of those drones, which is, I guess, sort of mini remote control helicopter type thing with a camera on it, and he flew that up into the air. What to to get some to get some lunch. Making Australia great again. <laughs> That's what he's doing. This is what we love. I wish so many of my foods were home delivered, my favourite foods. Mm. McDonald's, Hungry Jack's, all those things. Bunnings snag. I will drive to Bunnings on a Saturday <laughs> just to get a snag. I don't need sandpaper or a pot plant. I just need a snag. This whole concept of him flying the drone to get his food fascinates you, doesn't it? It's I have so many questions I need answered. <laughs> I need to know things. Well, it's funny you mention that because the great man has been kind enough to join us on the line this morning. The man responsible for using his drone to get a sausage from the Bunning Sausage Sizzle out at Sunbury is on the line. G'day, Tim. G'day, how are you going? Mate, uh, you've become a bit of a celebrity this week, but I might hand it over to Sharnel Vella because uh, she is very impressed with your work. Tim, first, no of, first of all, well done, mate. Just well done. Thanks, thanks for that. Now, a couple of questions I need to know. Was it still hot when it arrived? No, it was probably lukewarm, oh, you could say, look, unfortunately. I, I think that's okay because I would eat leftover barbecue sausages at 7am the day after a barbecue. Yeah, so still good cold. That's right. Now, how long was the arrival time? Uh, approximately three minutes. <laughs> wow. That's a fair bit better than Foodora. Because uh, we did fast forward the clip, so it looked like it was about you know thirty seconds, but it was probably about three minutes. And was it a smooth landing? Uh, smooth landing, yes. Um, it was pretty much all smooth. I mean, uh, the the uh, the pickup was smooth, and the, the landing was pretty smooth. Did the people at the sausage sizzle know you were coming? Well, I mean, we told them we would we were going to do some filming and dropping in, and um, <laughs> we said we have a drone coming. We didn't give them 100% of the details because we didn't want to you know, freak anyone out. But um, they were, at the end of the day, they were fine with it. We're talking to Tim who flew his drone, his sort of remote control camera helicopter to Bunnings to get a sausage. Now, you didn't want onions on it. <laughs> what was the order? Um, just just a snag. And then I said, there's a bit of, there's a bit of money. Well, I didn't say that. The, the uh, pick up the note said, here's a snag uh, and here's $10. Please, please put a snag in the bag. 
So um, pretty much didn't have any, any special instructions. So I guess they just read off the uh, note and done, done what was on the note. Now, mate, uh, I, I guess we, we do have to uh, just mention what is uh, a bit of a buzzkill, if you ask me, but Always. there are lots of rules around drones and the Civil Aviation Safety Authority, I think, is looking into your case. Uh, are, you, are you expecting to be fined? Uh, well, apparently he's still investigating. I did, I did give him a call because a lot of people sort of want an answer. Everyone's sort of hanging out to see what the outcome's going to be. I gave him a call. So at the moment, it's looking like a warning because uh, they've sort of got the message out they wanted to get out, um, but nothing's confirmed at this stage. I reckon you could get some sort of crowdfunding situation happening <laughs> if you were to be fined because the people of Australia are behind you. And I know you can't fly near people, but the people that make bunning sausages are saints. So <laughs> That's Yeah, true. they're great. There, there has been a few crowdfundings already put up and I have actually had them shut down just for the fact that I haven't got any fines and I don't want people donating to something that doesn't exist yet. Just adding so, to your um, legendary yeah, status. Yeah, there's no donations at the moment. I do appreciate the offer. It's fantastic, but just not at the moment. Mate, you just melted even more hearts there. It doesn't even want the money, Tim. Mate, look, I've got one question before we let you go, though. Yep. It's a beautiful sunny day. You're sitting out there in your backyard. Why couldn't you just sizzle a sausage in the backyard rather than fly the drone to Bunnings? Uh, that's too much, too much effort. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Tim. Thank you, you are so a great much. Australian, mate. We appreciate the time. It is eight to nine. Chanel Vella with us. How good was that? So good. He's too lazy to cook we, it himself. We did not ask if he was single or not, but no, if he is, good he point. is getting Get him a back. Woman. <laughs> now, you're a McDonald's fan. Love it. Would you get a drone to fly to your nearby McDonald's if you could? 100%. I get annoyed when the drive through isn't open. Like, I need it to be easy. Yeah. Well, in Italy, McDonald's has launched launched a new burger. It's the cheeseburger bun full of all its sugary goodness. And inside that burger is not meat, but pure Nutella. It's called the Sweet Decon. There's a photo of it. It's your typical cheeseburger bun with the shiny top and a big, thick, like maybe centimetre high spread of Nutella in the middle of the buns. I'm disappointed. You're disappointed? How so? Because they've brought into this Nutella craze. Oh, I just yeah. want... A quarter pounder with extra pickles, <laughs> large fries, and McChicken sauce on the side. Are you a large fries? Yeah. Wow, I'm impressed. If you're going to eat McDonald's, don't order a Diet Coke. Yeah, no. You know? no well, that's true. Although, we all do hog. it though, don't we? I've done it before. Yeah. Large Big Mac meal with Diet Coke. I'll have a water, thanks. <laughs> you're an idiot. <laughs> I reckon I could smash three or four sweaty con Nutella hamburgers. No, I don't want any of them. You don't want it? No, I don't want the Nutella donuts either. I don't want any of it. All right. Like, just give me... I reckon if you tasted it, you changed your mind. Maybe. Well, you know what we have to do then? What's that? Get Tim to fly his drone to Italy yes. and bring us back half a dozen sweaty yes. con Nutella hamburgers. Yes. Sweetie con. I keep calling it sweetie con. <laughs> Just sweet. Probably accurate. Doesn't sound as tasty. Yes. No. Uh, Chanel Vella, lovely to chat to you. Thank you very much. You have a sensational weekend. We will speak to you same time, same station next week. Triple M trainees, wise up. Ditch the paperwork and run your business on bridge. Triple M's Weekend Breakfast with Seb Costello.